Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. So good morning, and uh, yes, I do have a a full-time job. I work in hospice, a number of you already know this. And uh, I, do, I, have, I wear two hats in hospice. I provide therapeutic music for our patients, and I'm also a chaplain. Being in hospice, I um, often am involved in funerals. There were two this last week. On Thursday, we, there was a funeral for a lady who was 102 years old. And then yesterday, it was a gentleman who was 72 years old. And at his service, one of his friends got up, and he wanted to share about his last conversation with his friend before he died. And the room was just like this. And you don't even know the guy. Isn't it interesting that when we sense that someone, their juxtaposition to eternity is such that there's this sense they may have a perspective that we don't have and we tend to lean in and listen to what they have to say. And then by contrast, we look at Jesus as he prepares for his death. 33 years young, in perfect health, in perfect life, and he forecasts his impending death to his 12 disciples. Starting first in in John chapter two, five times, Between John chapter 2 and John chapter 12, he talks about my time, my time, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. And then in chapter 12 to chapter 17, five times again, the hour has come. He's letting them know. And then he goes into detail about what that will look like. And then he alludes to his death several times. And so... In chapter 12, he announces the hour has come. He wraps up his discourse with the general public and then moves into final conversations with these 12 who have given up everything to follow him. And they knew, you know, yeah, there's been, there's been some tension and uh, tension as in the Pharisees want to kill him. But hey, it's the Middle East. We do things differently. Um, So their sense was his kingdom is just around the corner and they were entertaining uh, visions of greatness next to him in his kingdom. And now it's just evaporating with every word. So just before Passover during the evening meal, things continue to deteriorate. Uh, Jesus washes their feet, including Judas. Hang on to that. Jesus speaks of betrayal among the 12. He prophesies that Peter will deny him three times. They can't go where he's going. Uh, and then he, he speaks words of comfort to them. He tells them about the spirit that will come and will lead them in all truth. He speaks of a, he gives a parable of him being the, the vine and they're the branches and they need to abide in him. And um, they keep getting stuck on this in a little while, and they talk amongst themselves, and what is this in a little while thing? And so finally he addresses that with them, and they're like, okay, now we understand that you 
have come from God. And then he says, the time has come that you are all are going to scatter. You're going to go to your own homes and you're going to leave me completely alone. And then we come to John chapter 17, and that's where we're going to be this morning. If you would turn your Bibles there to John chapter 17, I'm going to read the entire chapter. This is Jesus' longest prayer. It's called his high priestly prayer often. He prays for himself. He prays for his disciples who are listening as he prays for them. And he prays for all future believers. So John chapter 17, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true son, I'm sorry, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I, pr I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified." My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. 
and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So Jesus prays for himself and then he prays for the 12, for the 11. And repeatedly he asks the Father, protect them, protect them, protect them. I protected them while I was here. Notice it's in past tense. Protect them. And let's put this in context. So, so Jesus' hour has come. He's declared this. He knows what's about to happen because he's in charge of it. He's not going to hide from those who will come illegally to uh, arrest and try him. He will go to meet them. Those who were thwarted time and again when they tried to, to seize him, to stone him, to throw him off of a cliff. This Jesus who so easily evaded them will surprisingly go and meet them, look them in the eye and in essence say, let's do this. And in so doing, he, according to plan, will step out of the protection of the Father that he is praying for his disciples to have. He will go unprotected and endure the onslaught of hatred, contemptuous ridicule by the people, the very people who should be leading the way in prostrate worship before him. Unprotected, he will endure lies, spite, spit, slapping, slugging, browbeating both verbally and physically. He will go silently and unprotected, enduring derisive laughter and physical torture at the hands of the occupying Romans, so violent it will leave him shredded, bloody, and unrecognizable. He will go silently. The jeering Roman soldiers will jam a crown of thorns on his head and lead him unprotected, carrying his own cross. He will lay unprotected, arms outstretched as they drive nails into his hands and feet and be hoisted upright as he foretold, exposed, unprotected by the Father. Worst of all, unprotected from my sins, from your sins, the sins of the whole world, he will accept all sin upon himself. He who knew no sin will become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And he will die. With all of that coming at him, he looks up to heaven and earnestly implores his heavenly father to protect us to protect us from Satan. Do we feel the need for protection from Satan? I mean, practically, not just because it's in the Bible. If not, is there a reason for that? Does Satan consider us a threat? Or at least an aggravation? 
In the movie Saving Private Ryan, during the battle at Rommel, a young corporal dodging flying bullets and exploding grenades is making a run to a 30 caliber team to deliver them ammunition. And he runs into this building and halfway up the stairs, he freezes. He hears the hand-to-hand combat up above him and he just freezes on the stairs. He's got a rifle in his hand. He's got belts of ammo around his neck. And the hand-to-hand combat eventually fades. And all you can hear is the whimpering of this corporal. At the top of the stairs, uh, at the, top of the, stairs the seasoned SS German soldier steps out. And he looks down and he sizes up this corporal. Ammo around his neck got a loaded rifle, and he determines that he is of no consequence. And so he coldly and casually descends the stairs, brushes past this young corporal, and goes on into battle. I don't consider myself frozen in fear, but does Satan consider me of no consequence? Am I engaged in spiritual warfare? Or have I been so lulled into a comfortable, self-serving version of Christianity that there's not much to protect me from? Paul in Ephesians 6 lists the pieces of spiritual armor to equip us for spiritual warfare. He then ends by saying, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the Lord's people. Earlier in that same letter, Paul admonishes us to be very careful how we live, to live wisely, to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. How are they evil? Here's an example from C.S. Lewis's fictitious and eerily believable book, The Screwtape Letters. Letters of correspondence between a senior demon, Screwtape, and his nephew, Apprentice Wormwood, who is working to influence a human known as the patient. Screwtape. My dear Wormwood, do everything in your power to keep your patient from regular communion with our enemy, God, and convince him that being busy in life and ministry is an acceptable excuse not to spend regular time in prayer. If you can, get him to rationalize that because he offers short prayers to the enemy throughout the day, he doesn't need to have a dedicated and disciplined time of prayer. And if you can get him to the point where he tells people he prayed for them without actually praying for them, even better. If Satan and his minions can influence us like that, could that render us of no consequence? May we be abundantly more than an aggravation to the evil one so that Jesus' prayer for our protection is not wasted. Jesus asked the Father to protect them from the evil one and for a specific purpose, 
Holy Father, protect them by your name, the name you gave me, so that they may become one as we are one. More than once he says this in this passage, and there's this overlapping, that they be one as we are one, you and me, I and them, I and you. And initially he prays for the oneness among his chosen disciples, the ones about to betray, desert, and deny him. But he implores the Father, knowing they will desert him in his greatest hour of need and vulnerability, that they have the Father's protection, that they'll have the full measure of joy within them. He prays, Father, sanctify them that they may be one, just as you are in me and I in you. Later in the prayer, Jesus prays that they may be one as we are one, so that they may be brought to complete unity the process of becoming one. You know, for those of us who have grown up in the church, it's so easy to know stuff and it becomes secondhand and we don't think much about it. One of those things I think is the oneness of God. I think we lose over time the wonder and awe of what that is. And the oneness of God greets us at the beginning of the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, God. The Hebrew word for God there is Elohim, which suggests plurality. It suggests plural nouns, and it's also used to to communicate abstract concepts. And in Hebrew, mastership is often expressed in the plural. So in the beginning, God, we've got this suggested plurality. Verse 2, and the Spirit of God hovers over the the waters. The oneness of God is further revealed and delineated. The Hebrew word for spirit is often translated wind or breath. And in Psalm 33, we have this same word. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the hosts of them by the breath or spirit of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in the storehouses. Very reflective of that second verse about the spirit hovering over the water. Verse 26 of Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image. So now we have an us and an our, and we're seeing this relationship, this communication, this agreement, this purpose coming through. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, with and was Through him, all things were made. Apart from him, nothing was made that was made. Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3. In these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the power of his word. Scripture, without, att- without attempting to explain, is clear. God is one in the sense that he is one in all that he is and does. He is integrated in terms of his nature, his plan, and actions. The three persons of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, although distinct, are one divine essence. Who is like the Lord? Nobody. Nobody. What other faith, what other religion, what other system has anything like we have in Jesus Christ and in God the Father? 
So back to Genesis 1, after creating Adam from the dust of the earth, God creates a helper. And I used to think, you know, God created somebody to help me carry out my big plans. And as I have gotten older, I realize, no, we, we men really need help. <laughs> it's very true. In fact, that, that word suggests that it's the same word for the helper that, that he's going to send to guide the, 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 uh, his disciples and believers. So God takes Adam to the first outdoor OR, puts Adam under general anesthesia, removes a rib, seals the opening, makes a woman from the rib and brings her to Adam. It says, he brought her to the man like a father walking his, da- his daughter down the aisle, presenting her to the groom. So Adam and Eve are of the, of the same body. And in verse 23 and 24, it says, the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of a man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So Genesis chapter one, we see God is of multiple persons, yet one. And now at the end of chapter two, the culmination of creation, marriage and oneness. This is part of being made in the image of God. The first two people, Adam and Eve, man and woman, husband and wife, physically united as one, distinct as two people, but one. And what is the goal of Satan's first attack? To break oneness. If he can influence Adam and Eve to disobey, and they did, he can drive a wedge between them and each other and between them and God. So Adam, after the act of disobedience, turns on his wife and this woman who was previously bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh suddenly becomes the woman you put here with me, not my wife. Oneness and fellowship are damaged and so it is down through the ages. Discord, division, divorce, separation in our world today And I see this in my hospice work with families more regularly than I would like. Recently, a 90-year-old man asked me, what have I done wrong that my children won't come see me? We live in a badly broken world and Satan loves it that way. So Jesus asked God the Father to protect us so that we along with his disciples may be one as he and the Father are one to experience and grow in unity. Verse 23 of John 17, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And what does that look like among us? I like the, I enjoy the superficial version of that, watching an NBA game and a player goes up to, to make a shot that he will obviously make and instead he passes it to another player They make the shot, and the other team has no way of defending against that because they do not have that oneness of mind, that connection that made that move work. 
in hockey. Guy makes a goal, but they always announce who the first assist and the second assist is to deliver the puck to the one that makes the goal. That, that teamwork, that working together. Do the players all like each other? No, and they're not hired based on how they feel about each other. They're hired to do a job. And sometimes we see in games, we'll see a little tension arise. But the goal is to do what needs to be done, and those things are put aside. Unity is most evident in diversity, and Jesus' disciples were certainly diverse. In the book, 12 Ordinary Men by John MacArthur, it says, what is most amazing about the disciples is that Jesus ever selected them at all. Among them, a handful of common fishermen, a hated tax collector, and an impulsive political zealot. However, after the resurrection, his chosen disciples were one in purpose and in action, and it was clear that these ordinary, diverse, and uneducated men had been with Jesus. Their diversity showcased their unity, their oneness. Jesus prays that the Father protect us so that we, we may be one, so that we would grow in unity. And do we pray for that? Do we pray that our oneness here in Dunwoody Community Church, that it will be protected? When COVID hit, the, the term pestilence just kept coming up in my mind. So I thought I should look it up and see what it meant. Um, in Luke chapter 21, Jesus is talking with his, his disciples about signs of the end times. And he says, there will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places. So here's the definition. Pestilence is any epidemic disease that is highly contagious, infectious, virulent, and devastating. That sounds kind of like COVID-19 to me. And I don't know how this fits in with Jesus' comments about signs of the end times, but that virus may have been a wake-up call for us for what is to come. And to some degree, a missed opportunity to grow together in selfless servant bonds of Christian love and unity, to navigate the roadblocks that will, tempt, that will attempt to slow us down and divide. And the virus, the virus also produced anxiety, agitation, discord, anger, and severed relationships, which is just what the evil one wants. He loves to divide us. But here again, we must note that Jesus, who steps out of the protection of the Heavenly Father, he also steps out of the oneness for a moment of time with the Father and the Spirit through eternity past. In a sense, it's just like the, the permanent nail prints in his hands and the spear scar on his side. There's that space and time where the father had to turn his back on Jesus who had taken on our sin. And that oneness was disrupted, marred, when Jesus willingly forfeited it so that we could know and experience oneness with him and with the father and with each other. 
Jesus leaving himself unprotected, completely vulnerable and temporarily alone in a way that you and I can never imagine, prayed that the Father would protect us so that we could be one as he and the Father are one. And in addition, twice, Jesus makes a declaration in his prayer. Protect them from the evil ones so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you, the Father, sent me. Do you ever think that God would use our oneness in the body of Christ to convince the world that he, the Father, sent Jesus? How are they going to see that? I have a pretty simple mind my thought is the only way they're going to see that is if we spend time with them and they spend time with us and they see how we relate to each other and how we relate to them. The power of nonverbal evangelism. Jesus was very much in the world so much so that the people of religious status quo, even his disciples, were really off-put by it. When Jesus conversed with the Samaritan woman at the well, his disciples coming back from going to town for food were just kind of gobsmacked. They didn't know what to do. You just don't do that sort of thing in these parts in 30 AD. Jesus made it clear in his prayer that he wants us in the world like him, yet not of the world. We drum to the beat of his different march. So this, the longest prayer of Jesus, when his hour had come, is marked by his deep love for his chosen diverse disciples. I hope you noticed at the end of the prayer, he said, I want them to be with me. That's just amazing. His prayer for them after telling them how they're going to desert him. And he tells the father they have believed, they have accepted. And I want them to be with me. Thank God for his grace. He petitions his heavenly father before things become really intense to protect us from the evil one, Satan, to make us one as he and the father are one, that we may be brought to complete unity and that quality of that unity in stark contrast to this fractured world will be so compelling that the world will know that the father sent Jesus to live and die and be resurrected for us all. This hymn came to my mind, and I want to wrap up my sermon with this. It, it kind of summarizes John chapter 17, written by Thomas Ken. Praise the Savior, ye who know him. Who can tell how much we owe him? Gladly, let us render to him all we are and have. Jesus is the name that charms us. He for conflict fits and arms us. Nothing moves and nothing harms us while we trust in him. Trust in him, you saints, forever. He is faithful, changing never. Neither force nor guile can sever those he loves from him. Keep us, Lord. Oh, keep us cleaving to thyself and still believing till the hour of our receiving promised joys with thee. Then we shall be where we would be. Then we shall be what we should be. Things that are not now nor could be 
soon shall be our own. Pray with me. Jesus, my prayer for myself, for all of us, is that we may live wisely, making the most of every opportunity. That our lives, our relationships, will be so conspicuously winsome and Christ-like that we'll need the Father's protection from Satan who hates that kind of behavior. I pray that you will grow us in unity as we submit to you, like you submit to the Father, that those things that could so easily divide us will be set aside for the greater good and joy of unity in you. And may the light of our unity and oneness in you shine before others that they may see our good works and glorify you and your Father in heaven. Amen.